Welcome to Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. This is the podcast that's devoted to living enthusiastically today and tomorrow and every other day of your life. Our podcast brings guests to you who live their own lives enthusiastically and have guidance to enable you to do so in your own lives and be the most effective and best version of yourself that you can be. I am your host, Ron Kaiser. I'm a positive health psychologist and also author of the award-winning and best-selling book, Rejuvenating the Art and Science of Growing Older with Enthusiasm. And today, I'm really proud and happy to welcome our guest, who is going to give us lots of information useful for individuals of every age. Alexandra Stockwell, MD, is a physician who turned relationship and intimacy expert. We're going to have to find out about that. She's known as the relationship catalyst. As a wife of 23 years and a mother of four, she believes that the key to passion, fulfillment, intimacy, and success in a couple's relationship isn't compromise. I better make sure my wife doesn't listen to this one, but it's not compromise, but rather being unwilling to compromise. Because when both people feel free to be themselves and know how to love and be loved for exactly who they are, the relationship is juicy, nourishing, and deeply satisfying. For over 20 years, she has shown men and women how to bring pleasure and purpose into their lives, all aspects of their lives, from the daily grind of running a household to successfully growing a business to creating ecstatic experiences in the bedroom. Alexandra helps build connected and happy families through facilitating healing and transformation of couples. That's an amazing amount of stuff to do, but I know having met Alexandra that she is very, very capable of doing it. So we've got a real treat in store for you. And Alexandra, welcome to Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. I'm so grateful to be here. I love your topic, and I really am glad to contribute to what you bring to people. Well, I'm sure you're going to contribute a lot, but I can't get too far into it before. I'm always interested in people's journey as to how they became who they became and who they are now. And I obviously had to be struck by the notion of physician-turned-relationship expert. And working in a medical school, I see all these young men and women put in their time and grind and so on to become physicians. I'm sure you went through that process. It requires a high degree of commitment. And while you're doing a field that's not unrelated, probably not exactly what you uh, studied in medical school. So maybe you can give us a little bit of an introduction to yourself by describing your journey to us. I'd be glad to. And yeah, it is a lot of work to become a physician, 60 to 100 hours a week. It's years of training, tests, and all of that. And I was in medicine for 12 years. I was in my mid-30s. I loved practicing medicine. I people in their time of need, even when the only thing that I had to offer was the quality of my presence, that actually made a big difference. So I loved practicing medicine. And in my mid-30s, 
I had paid off my student loans for medical school. I had my own practice. Everything was as I had worked towards. I was married at that time. I had three of my four children. And I thought I should have had some sense of having really arrived, that this was good and this is what I was going to do for the next decades. But that's not how I felt. I felt a little bit hollow. And within two years, all at the same time, my father died and then my mother died. And my mother and I were very close. She died just after her 60th birthday. And when she died, I really felt like the rug was pulled out from under me. And so much of what had been certain that I had worked towards creating in my life in terms of where I lived, my profession, how I was focusing my time and energy, suddenly all of that was no longer certain. And it was really kind of up in the air and wobbly. And the only thing that I was certain about was my commitment and devotion to my husband and to being the one who raises my children. And when I look back on that with so much respect for people wherever they are on this, I feel like I switched my priorities from research, book learning, academic standing, prestige, and a really thorough understanding of things to prioritizing my relationships. Now, I haven't let go of the gravity and the way of thinking that I learned as a physician, but in terms of how I spend my time and how open my heart is and what I really want to bring to the world, it's really switched to prioritize relationships in the way that we will talk more about. Great. Well, it's, you know, really admirable to be able to say, okay, I'm doing something that may have been fulfilling, but is no longer fulfilling the way other things might be. And it's really great to be able to, to make that course correction. I assume that what you're doing now is a really good fit for you. It is. And I feel like I bring so much of what is relevant from medicine. And there's a really important distinction because being a doctor requires, be, requires being in a role. And whether I literally put on a white coat or just metaphorically, there's a lot of me that I had to leave outside the clinic. And I don't talk much about myself unless I'm telling a story which will inspire and serve a client now but I do feel like I can bring all of who I am and anything I've ever experienced in my life. It all has purpose, but it certainly is something that I can draw on to serve my clients. And so I feel much more fully engaged. And in fact, that is exactly what I teach couples. I think bringing all of yourself into your relationship is so important. I think bringing all of yourself into your life is important, which I believe is my way of saying exactly what you say and mean when you talk about living enthusiastically. You know, our, our work kind of dovetails in a lot of ways, but I think for many of us, the, the we know what a physician does with, uh, you know, 
broad a broad range of parameters, but not many people go by the title of relationship and intimacy expert. So what do you really do on a day-to-day basis? Okay, that's such a beautiful question. I think I've been interviewed, oh, I don't know, 44 times in the last 12 months, and no one has asked that question. So I love it. Great. It's good to hear that you do. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. So I'm going to give the eagle's eye version and then the on the ground version. So in terms of the big picture, what I am doing is for a brief moment and in a very respectful way, joining couples in the intimacy of their relationship. I don't mean sexual intimacy. I coach couples who are fully closed and all we are doing is speaking. We, we certainly talk about sensuality and things that happen in the bedroom, but my role is speaking and listening. And let me step even further back and say that as mammals, we learn through imitation. And that is true of all mammals, including human beings. And when it comes to relationships, we don't really have role models worth emulating. There may be a relationship which is really good that you know about and admire, like maybe your parents or your grandparents really loved one another well, but typically that's not the relationship that you want to participate in. You might want the same kind of success and the same loving energy, but what that looks like for the next generation is going to be very different. And so what I'm doing is meeting people where they are, And often they have tried a lot of things or they haven't seen anyone else succeed and they don't know what's possible. So in the broadest strokes, what I'm doing is meeting people where they are and giving them hope because having a gratifying relationship is a completely learnable skill. And in many ways, what I do is I teach people the skills they need to have the relationship they want. That's really an amazing concept, that it's a a learnable skill, which raises the question of, we learn all kinds of things in different settings, in school, and driving classes, and golf courses. If it's a learnable skill, why aren't we doing a better job of teaching it? You know, that is a huge question, which I'm going to sidestep and tell some of the ways it can be learned. Because fundamentally, I think the reason it's not taught is people don't feel confident. Someone can easily feel with appropriate study and mentorship and so forth, become very confident in teaching math or science or writing. And I think teaching relationships requires a confidence and goes way beyond book learning. And so it's not that easy. Although in Scandinavia, there are some amazing programs. They start sex ed in kindergarten. They don't necessarily, maybe just like starting with anatomical names. It's all developmentally age appropriate, but there are models in the world where relationship skills are taught. Now, relationship skills, of course, are not the same as sex education. But the reason that I bring that in is because by and large, there's either no sex education or the sex education in the United States is really geared towards teaching people about disease and preventing pregnancy, 
which means it's a very scary topic. And in these really developmentally based educational models and programs, such as exist in Scandinavia and a few isolated places in the United States and perhaps elsewhere as well, they're really teaching people how to know and connect with their desire, how to make requests, how to be respectful, how to experience pleasure, how to set boundaries. When education happens focused on it being a positive experience rather than scaring people and telling them why to avoid a negative experience, they grow up with a totally different vision of what's possible. And I think there are a few principles that are essential in understanding how this is a learnable skill. One is that I look at relationships as the vehicle for personal transformation. So I don't think of relationships as a situation where it's 50-50. You know, I'll, I'll meet you halfway. That's a typical model. It's not the one that I think actually works. What works is when both people each take 100% responsibility for making that a fantastic relationship because it's in those last few percentages that the gap is really closed. And if you say, well, I'm, I'm doing 50%, she can, she can meet me there you don't end up with the kind of relationship that you get if you do everything that you think is going to create a great relationship and she does too. Then the whole is far greater than the sum of the parts. Really fantastic stuff. I'm wondering, is there a place where this breaks down more? In other words, I'm wondering a couple falls in love, gets married and the rules kind of work for a while, but they're not necessarily doing this at a time when they're building a career, building a family, having other kinds of things that go along with it. And I'm wondering if part of the problem is that we learn how to relate at a simpler time than what we face with the rest of our lives and whether the, the energy it takes to do all these other things or the degree of commitment or how to balance things uh, really interfere with things like intimacy and the ability to relate at a real loving level. Yes, absolutely. And so when exactly the tipping point comes, it varies for different people. And of course, it can end up leading to divorce. 50% of First marriages end in divorce and 60% of second and 73% of third marriages end in divorce. But what I'm really interested in changing for really the whole world is the quality of relationships in, for people who stay together. Because the most common relationship in the United States anyway, is a relationship of toleration where both people love one another, they want to stay together, and they have what I describe as the relationship which is conflict-free and passion-free. And that comes from just steadily dialing down what you actually need in order to keep everybody happy. We don't want to say something that's going to be upsetting to our partner either because we don't want to hurt them or because we don't want to deal with their response. And most people are nice. And so we end up with these relationships which don't have conflict, but 
but they also don't have passion. Now, of course, there are all kinds of relationships, but that is really the most dominant one in our culture. And I think I see the results of it with my peers. I've often commented uh, to my wife, when we go to a restaurant, almost inevitably, if there are several couples our, our age, you know, at different tables, it always saddens me a bit to see a couple come in, they order their meals, and they go through the whole meal. They, they may as well be eating at a counter by themselves. And while, you know, I suspect maybe there are some other things that could be going on from time to time, I suspect that I'm, I'm getting a snapshot of the way that they, they lead their lives in terms of their interactions with each other. And I don't know how many older couples you may see, uh, but is this a, a common thing as, as we get older that one of the ways of kind of not dealing with this stuff is to not deal with it, to just not interact and, and you know, we're not looking at a divorce or anything of that nature, but uh, we're just not, I mean, there's an obvious lack of passion as well as, as lack of just shared ability to, to carry on a conversation. Absolutely. And you remind me, I had a very formative experience when I was 21. I was in Paris for the first time, and I remember going out to a restaurant, and I was just astonished because every couple in there, and they were mostly in their 50s and 60s, they were all dating. And I was just astounded that so many people would be divorced and dating. And then I realized that actually they were married. And I was so unused to seeing that kind of French flirtatiousness and je ne sais quoi and engagement that I just assumed that they were divorced and early in a, a new or second relationship. And actually they were couples who knew how to enjoy the sensual and emotional connection decades into their marital life. So I really I, I understand the dilemma you're describing because I didn't even know I had that assumption until I had this experience. And, you know, it's not just about avoiding things or if there's some problem that they're not talking about. There's always some of that, but that's not actually the main thing, and it's not the place to start. So what I'm going to describe is something that's very easy to implement. I, When I teach couples how to have really fantastic, gratifying relationships, I teach the six essential qualities of conscious partnership. And the first one is cultivate curiosity. Because one of the qualities of that time when people are in love early on is you just want to know everything about your beloved. What was the first day of school like? How do you like your steak cooked? What's your favorite color? Where do you want to live in the future? I mean, one of the characteristics of falling in love is, of course, those beautiful silences, but it's also lots of questions and eagerness to know who is this person? And as things fade, we put our attention on other areas in life, we feel like we already know our partner, 
one of the things which really drops is authentic curiosity. And so it's a very simple thing. It's just like adding salt to food to bring curiosity, to cultivate curiosity in a relationship. And that already opens up interest. The energy starts flowing. And what's really important is to ask open-ended questions. So whoever you are, you may have been married for 64 years, and I guarantee there are all kinds of things that you don't know about your spouse. Now, we know that that's true when we're in our 20s and we're meeting someone. Of course, we don't know everything about them. And you, after decades of marriage or committed partnership, you may know your partner really well. I assume you do. And there's so much still to be discovered. And that takes open-ended questions like just one simple one is, what are you most excited about these days? Or when was the last time you told a lie? That's maybe not a good starting question, but what is the first time you had an experience of really feeling proud of what you do? There are all kinds of questions based on the person's life that you just never thought to ask. I've been married for 23 years, and every time I learn something totally new that I never, like our oldest child graduated from college in May. And while we were at the graduation, I asked my husband a number of a number of questions about his experiences when he graduated from college that had just never occurred to me to ask. And it was so interesting to hear his experience because we met a few years later. So one of the easiest steps, although it's not easy if you're out of habit, but one of the easiest transitions to bring back passion and a deeper connection is to cultivate curiosity. And I have to add one more piece to that because there are plenty of people who develop the skill to ask open-ended questions, but it's really essential to be a yes to whatever that answer is. Because if you ask an open-ended question and your partner ends up telling you something that he or she has never told you before, you want to be glad they told you. Even if you don't like the content, you can be glad that they're opening up to you because that's what's going to move towards more passion and deeper connection. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And as you were talking, I mean, I've tried to picture some of the conversations that my wife and I have had either when we've gone to reunions or something, I mean, it's kind of really, really exciting to learn something new that we never thought of asking and seeing a person in a different context or how they were at a particular age. And to share in that enjoyment, obviously, is, uh, is a real plus in terms of building the relationship. I had asked you about this, this issue with older couples does your work also involve, I mean, when people get older, there's a good chance that there may be some real new stuff entering the picture. There may be a divorce, there may be the loss, uh, a person may be a widow, a widower, it may be moving to a different area. Seems like there's, there's kind of a second wave of 
learning how to do things. Uh, do you work with people who may not be a a couple at this point, but is learning how to get back into how to be uh, uh, somebody with their own identity as they move forward? Yes, absolutely, because there's some fundamental ways in which it doesn't matter if a person is single or in a relationship when they're in a new season of their life, it requires the same skills. And I want to add to the list of considerations you gave about newly widowed, actually the divorce rate among couples who've been married for at least 30 years is rising too. So there's plenty of divorce as well as uh, the loss of a spouse or moving, moving into a a smaller home or retirement community. But I want to also add to the list that there are bodily changes which require, whether it's erectile dysfunction or any kind of other consideration, that's probably the one that's most common, but there are all kinds of ways, just appearances and how things feel that require new skills. And one of I think the most fundamental decision, and this is true at every age, but it's acutely so in the time when people are either going to rejuvenate or just age, and that is to choose between a growth mindset and a fixed mindset. Now, if someone's making a choice, they're not going to choose a fixed mindset. That usually happens by default, but a fixed mindset the fundamental belief with that attitude is that things are the way they are and there's nothing I can do about it. And if that's the case, that will be a fulfilling prophecy. But if you take the approach that there's always more to learn and there's always an opportunity to take more responsibility and improve and learn new things, then In that situation, if I'm talking to someone who's in one of these transitional times, I usually start by asking how they want their life to feel. What do they want to be experiencing? And there's usually not a clear answer because we're much better at looking back at what we don't have than finding the courage and the imagination and the inspiration to look at what we'd like to be moving towards. But once there's clarity in that, then it's actually not so challenging to move towards it. And it can be reverse engineered depending on what the desire is. So, for example, perhaps a woman has been married for 42 years And she's spent the last three years caring for an ill husband and then he passes and there's a real time of adjustment. But then she's not sure if she wants to find another man. Well, often that's because she doesn't want to feel restricted because she's enjoying her new freedom. But there are all kinds of relationships that are available that have companionship and freedom. Makes me think of um, Catherine Hepburn, who in her later years said she thought the ideal was to be married to the man who lives next door. (laughs) But my point here is that 
what's so important in a time of transition in the last third of life is to give oneself permission to have learned from what worked and to have learned from what didn't work in the prior two thirds of life and then find the courage to do it differently. And for someone who's motivated, the figuring out exactly what that looks like is often not so challenging. The bigger step is in finding the courage to want to do it differently and imagining how that would actually be and giving oneself permission to have it. And I think a somewhat similar uh, set of, of beliefs needs to apply to couples where the change is unequal. In other words, when people get married, they may be very, their sexual appetites may be very similar, their health may be very similar, their ability to travel or do things, their orientation toward growth of career or commitment to family may be similar. And then some changes occur. Sexually, one may become uh, less capable or active or desirous. Uh, somebody's health may be dramatically different than their partner's. And I would think that it's got to be a, both a challenge but a potentially rewarding thing to, to kind of help people to make that kind of adjustment to where do we go now with our lives? Yes, and we talked about cultivating curiosity, one of the other six essential qualities in relationships, in great relationships, is to embrace honesty. And I want to teach everyone listening a good way to do that, because the most important thing in the situation you've described, where there is a divergence in desires or capabilities, the most important thing is to be able to speak honestly about it to avoid discussing it or to feel resentment and blame, whether it's discussed or not. Those are ways of being that make this divergence lead to disconnection in the relationship. And that doesn't have to be. When there's honesty and mutual appreciation, then there can be a depth of connection, even though there's a divergence of interest. So, the way that I teach people to do that is with three steps. The first step is to say to your partner, I have something vulnerable to share with you. Are you available? It's very important that you don't over-dramatize, but still call attention to the fact that this is an important communication. Because otherwise, you may say something which is very tender and significant and it might not even be noticed by your partner if you don't actually say I have something vulnerable to share with you or something really significant are you available and then you have to be open to the answer either being yes or being no but if you're in a committed partnership there's not really no there's either yes or not right now and then when you go to have the conversation before making the communication to say, this is my reason for telling you, and this is my desired outcome. And when you say, I want to tell you because I've been 
feeling uncomfortable that there's this important thing happening and we haven't been addressing it and it's making it hard to really feel connected or I don't know what someone would say I'm kind of making it up but I wanted to tell you because I think it's important that we discuss this and my desired outcome is that I understand what's important to you and your perspective and you understand what's important to me and my perspective and together we can figure something out. That's an example. I'm not saying that that's always the case. I mean, sometimes when it's a much more minor issue, not the kind of big transition you're talking about, I might say to my husband, I have something vulnerable to tell you. And he'll say, okay. And I'll say, I'm telling you because I just keep thinking about it and it's making it hard to really connect with you. And my desired outcome is after sharing this with you that then we can really connect and have a great evening in bed. But right now I, I don't want to until I can share this with you. And then I might say something like waking up to dirty dishes in the sink has me feel unseen and uncared for. And like you take me for granted, like it, it can be something very minor that triggers a bigger reaction. But anyway, moving back to the situation where someone has something really significant to say, like, for example, we used to travel so much and I really loved it. And now that you have a difficult time with walking, we're not traveling, but I'd like to travel occasionally on my own. And I'd like to hear how that would be for you. And that way, instead of the one who's healthy and not traveling and feeling resentful and feeling only like a caretaker and not like a wife or a husband, depending. There's the possibility for some really loving communication. And the one who has difficulty walking can say, I love you. I want you to be doing that. Maybe I can stay with family or stay with a rehab two weeks a year. I mean, there's the possibility for really honest conversation. If someone has had a stroke or is unable to participate in the conversation, that's a really different situation. But where both people are capable of having a conversation, if someone listening gets one thing from this, it's not in a blaming way, not in an accusatory way, nothing like that, but in a careful, open-hearted, vulnerable way, Share what your experience is, and the rewards are so magnificent. And I think one of the things that also is uh, is a possible reward, aside from the connectedness and the improvement in the relationship, sometimes a problem when it stays inside your head and is not shared, we're blocked off from finding a possible solution. So aside from what it does, you know, individually and as a couple, sometimes it winds up being simpler than that. It's shared. There might be a help available. There might be something that, that you know, a visit to a physician or whatever may, may make certain kinds of changes. So there, there are some sometimes practical outcomes. So I think there's a, a lot of good reasons for being honest in a relationship. I agree. I agree. And Either the other person knows or you're just creative together and all kinds of things get solved. If you get over the hurdle and find the courage 
to with kindness say the thing. Great. Well, Alexandra, thanks so much for all of this. I have a feeling that we just got started, but one of the one of the problems with being a podcast host is I do have to watch the clock and eventually bring it to a close. So what I'd like to find out is number one, how people get in touch with you. And number two, you did tell me something intriguing about possibly having a gift for people. That's uh, while your presentation should be gift enough, if, if you've got something else, let, let me turn this part over to you and let, let you free associate. Okay, I would love that. So my website is alexandrastockwell.com, A-L-E-X-A-N-D-R-A stockwell.com and i'm on facebook instagram linkedin and the gift i have we've talked about two of the six essential qualities of conscious partnership we talked about cultivate curiosity and embrace honesty and i've written about the others and so anyone who'd like to read and get more of a feeling for them please go to alexandrastockwell.com forward slash the number six Q. So for six qualities. So it's just alexandrastockwell.com forward slash six Q. And you can read about all the rest of them. And I'd love to hear how you implement them in your relationship. Great. And we will include the contact information in the show notes. So if you're listening to this while driving in your car, you know, get to the show notes. You'll have all the contact information. I know that I have enough questions for at least one more show with you. So don't assume that you're done with me. But Alexander, it's been just a real joy having you and a real source of information. I hope you will come back. And I just you know, can't express my appreciation enough to the listeners. If you have additional questions for me or suggestions for future guests, please contact me at ron.kaiser at the mental health gym. The mental health gym, of course, is my website. And until next time, this is Dr. Ron Kaiser signing off.